Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. If you turn your Bibles to the book of Amos, so as we're in the minor prophets, these incredible people who were given the responsibility of speaking to the children of Israel, the word of the Lord. Now the beauty that we have is we have the completed word of God, word of God the inerrant word of God, that which is recorded for us in our Bibles. But during this day and time, especially here in the northern kingdom, uh, which was the ten northern tribes, you have this man who is from Judah, which is the two southern tribes, that uh, goes to the northern tribes, and he has a word for them. And as we reach chapter 7, we have just a couple more chapters after this, we have this incredible vision that God gives to Amos regarding the health of the nation. And there's some very practical lessons contained in this particular chapter and really the remainder of the rest of the book. And while they're not direct equivalences to the world that we live in today, um, they're very, very, very similar to the world that we live in today. And while these things that are going to be pronounced upon uh, the northern tribes, Israel, we really don't have too much familiarity with uh, in our world today, there are similar things that we can look at that God often, as is in the case of this particular vision, things that God himself is at work doing, and they're not necessarily good things. We associate, because God himself is good and God himself is love, we often think that the only things that the Lord ever does are things that we would categorize uh, in, in those things in this world that we would say are good. In this case, God is going to directly be the cause of some things that we would say are definitely not good. And there are some lessons in this. And so I pray tonight as we pick up here in chapter 7, we take the whole chapter, uh, that the Lord would speak to us through the words of the prophet Amos, as he wrote some 2,800 years ago. Father, we thank you that what your word says is true. It hasn't changed, remains the same. And while the application may be different for us today under grace than it was for those under the law during that time, God, we thank you for your grace, but we also know that your holiness is unchanged. Your character is unchanged. Your desire for your people is unchanged. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, cause us to hear your word and to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 here in Amos 7. For thus the Lord God showed me, behold, he formed, underline that, he formed, he put together, He made, he caused, you could put all those words in there, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. So here's the final crop that's going to come that the children of Israel would have taken in 
to provide for them through the winter. So the late crop is the final crop. This is the one that you would rely on in those days when things would normally be lean. Uh, We don't often think of it, but especially in the northern regions of modern-day Israel, which is where this is, the region of Dan, which is on the conflux of the Dan River, and the Jordan, which means out of Dan. Uh, The Jordan River flows out of this area. It actually snows there during the winter. It's cold. Uh, And so those late crops, as they would be harvested, would be essential to the survival of the villages in the region. And it says very plainly here that because of their disobedience, because of the things that they were doing that were not matched up with God's desire for them, God was actually going to bring about cause. He would be the causative agent of these swarms of locusts. And indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so what happened as a formation of of kind of an early tax code, when you harvested the hay that was in the field, or in this particular case, grass, the first mowings always belonged to the king. And so whoever was the ruler of the region, the fields would be mowed one time, that would be given to the king as a tribute to the king. And so this is kind of an odd picture for us because we don't live in an agrarian society particularly anymore, though we do have some tremendous agriculture here in the state of California, It was the late crop that's after the king's mowing, so the king's taken his part. The rich are going to have theirs. The the rulers are going to be able to live in luxury. They're going to fly in their private jets, and the real people are going to starve. And so in that sense, it is kind of important that we look at it in that context. It's like, here's a situation where God's saying, look, I appointed these rulers, these kings. I'm going to give them theirs. But you, the common people, because you've refused to do what I've asked you to do, you're going to go through a time of suffering, a time of leanness. This is what God had planned. This is what the Lord said he would do. But I want you to see the role of the intercessory prayer warrior. These first two things that we'll see here, this devouring locust, consuming fire, are both actually forestalled, put off, taken care of, won't be done because of the prayers of the righteous. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. And so the Lord relented concerning this, It shall not be, says the Lord. And so here's a situation where it's very clear what God intended to do. There was going to be a time of leanness. A time where the rich would be rich, but the poor would suffer. And through the prayers of a single righteous man, Amos, someone who didn't even live in the region, but someone who cared deeply about The people of God, remember that all of Israel, all 12 tribes were considered the chosen people, those who were God's particular beloved ones at that time, that the Lord relented concerning this. And I have some questions for you tonight, and this is an area that I think a lot of Christians struggle in. Are you the type of Christian who complains, or are you the type of Christian who prays?
Are you the type of Christian who has a thought about almost everything, but you pray about nothing? Are you the type of Christian who looks at the world around you and has something negative to say about what's going on, but does nothing to pray about ending those negative things? I think there are a lot of people who fall into that category. Oh, we can spot the problems. We can call them out by name. We can say, this is wrong, that's wrong, this person's in office, that person did this thing. We should have this law. These types of things shouldn't be happening. We shouldn't be addressing these issues now because they're not right according to Scripture. But we don't pray about them. We just simply complain. We bellyache. We whine. We grumble. And the reason I'm saying that is I think to some degree... What happens is God allows us to go through times of testing that he would have otherwise relented had we simply stopped to pray for those people instead of complaining about them. Instead of looking at them and pointing out the faults and to see the things that are wrong, have we really undertaken, Lord, do not do this thing. I know we deserve it. But would you spare our nation from going through that particular problem. And you can look at our world today and see all kinds of things that would fall into that category. There are, there are so many sinful things going on in our world today, it would not take you long to have a very full prayer list. The question is, do you have a full prayer list? Are you a prayer warrior? Are you interceding? Are you doing what Jesus is doing for you right now, which is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us? It's what Jesus is doing. Are you doing that for others? Because here's a man who took it upon himself in the face of evil, knowing by God's grace, having been ordained of God to understand these things, that a disaster is coming. We find out what a real, solid believer does, someone who actually loves the Lord, that is he gets on his knees. She gets on her knees. They begin to pray and ask God, please, God, spare us. Not get them, Lord. The remainder of this book actually is the visions of the prophet Amos. And we're going to see a number of these things tonight. But this role of intercessor... So important, and so few take it up. Why is that? Why is that? I can tell you as a pastor, one of the things that grieves me most frequently and most often is when I have given godly counsel, I have shared the word, I have spoken to people about certain things in their lives, and they turn right around and do exactly what I told them not to do. It sometimes is really hard to continue to pray for that person. There is a part of us that I think looks at evil, looks at wrong, looks at when something is happening and you know the other side has already been spoken, that we kind of stop praying. I I see this in my own life at times when I've counseled maybe in a marriage or maybe in a business situation or something has happened in someone's life and I've you know, we've sat down and we've taken out the word and here's what the word says about that situation and that person looks at you and goes, they shake their head. 
And they turn right around and do exactly the opposite. It's real easy to just go, well, I'm turning them over to the devil for the destruction of their flesh. I'm going to let the devil have them. Maybe God's asking us to continue to pray for him. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you tonight, that person that really has gotten underneath your skin. That person that you actually don't like very much. That person who's actually in sin. That person who's taken up something that shouldn't be in their life and it's affecting your life. Are you strong enough in the Lord to get on your knees and pray for that person? That country that state, that board of supervisor member, that mayor. I have listened to so many hateful things that have been said about people who've been placed over us to rule over us. It's actually shocking when I hear them come out of the mouths of Christians. People who name the name of Christ, who then turn around and actually speak evil of those who could negatively affect us all. Instead of saying, man, I just need to pray more. It's easy to pick out faults. It's hard to pray. Amos was a prayer warrior. And I want to encourage you tonight to join him in that endeavor. God's judgment is actually restrained by his prayers. One man's prayers. God pulls his hand back. He says, I will relent. The next vision that Amos sees is this vision of locusts and then a vision of devastating flame in verse 4. Thus says the Lord God who showed me Behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire. And so it wouldn't be bad enough that there would be pestilence in the land. These locusts would destroy the crops. But it literally seems to be that the sun would be amazingly hot. Now, this again is kind of what we're going through here in Southern California right now. We're going through this incredible heat wave. It was 128 degrees in Death Valley two days ago. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen what happens to the inside of your car made out of plastic at 128 degrees when it's left in the sun, but it's not pretty. It can exceed to, it can boil water inside of your vehicle. But now imagine that the Lord no longer restrains the sun's rays. He, you know, for a moment causes the Van Allen radiation belts to stop doing their thing, and all of a sudden those rays hit our our earth directly instead of being filtered through an ozone layer and all the things that God could just simply say, nah, I'm going to kind of remove that for a few minutes. The Lord said he was going to just destroy by fire and it consumed the great deep. In other words, it was so hot that it boiled the oceans and devoured the territory. In other words, the land itself was burned. And then I said, Lord God, cease, I pray. And so again, these are the things that the Lord was 
on his way of allowing. And one man, Amos, because he was a prayer warrior, oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. And so the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, says the Lord God. And so it's a reinforcement of the first point. This is the imperative that we have as God's people to be people of prayer. Now, sometimes people ask me, well, you know, is that, you know, do you have to be on your knees? Do you have to fold your hands? You know, what position do you need to take? The Bible actually doesn't say much about that at all. But what it does say is it's an attitude of heart. It's bended knee towards the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And it is something that we are supposed to do constantly and consistently. Two words, constantly, all the time, and consistently. In other words, as a matter of habit. We are to pray about everything without ceasing. That means when you're driving around, you're praying. When you're sitting at your desk, you're praying. That means when you're talking and walking and eating, you're praying. Now, some of you are going, man, I just, I, how do you do that? Look at it this way. Just put that spiritual cell phone on speakerphone and simply be in, in commune with God. It's like, Lord, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to pray, intercede? There are times when you should be on your knees. Look, let me be clear. There are times that take that extra effort. There are times that we ought ought to be prostrate before the Lord and just say, God, if you don't intercede right now, and I assume that that is what Amos is doing at this point in time. But I think the bigger picture is, how's your prayer life? What does it really look like? Do you have an open line of communication between you and the Lord? Because God was about to unleash a dust bowl on, on Israel. He was about to cause a heat wave that would have destroyed many, if not most, of the people. He was about to boil the ocean, no doubt killing off the fish. And were it not for one prayer warrior, those things would have come to pass. Are you that person? Are you that person? Are we that kind of church? Are are we those types of Christians? that see a disaster coming and we get on our knees immediately. Here's the crazy thing about God. He actually listens to us. You ever thought about that? The creator of heaven and earth is listening to the voice of his children. He actually answers prayer. It's not like some kind of weird thing like only certain people. No, God is listening to the cries of his children. Actually, he loves to hear from us. Oh, he's celebrated in the last couple of months, Mother's Day and Father's Day. Those of you that are parents, is there anything better than hearing from your kids? There really isn't. When you're ch- it doesn't even matter what they say. It's the fact that they took time to communicate to say, Dad, I so appreciate you. Or Mom, I so love you. Thank you for all you do. And then they ask you to borrow the car. You you see, when children talk to their parents, it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of love. Are we going to do that with our Heavenly Father? 
Do you love him and respect him enough to actually talk to him? Amos did. He loved the Lord so supremely that in the face of something he could do nothing about himself, he knew where to go. And that was straight to his heavenly father. It wasn't to complaining. You see, the children of Israel were kind of, well, they were professional complainers, actually. If you turn to Numbers 11, if you want to go there, verse 1, it says pretty plainly, verse 1, and now, Numbers 11, verse 1, the people complained. (laughs) That's pretty plain speech, isn't it? The people complained. Now notice what it said next. And it displeased the Lord. When God's people complain, it displeases the Lord. When we whine about our circumstance instead of praying about our circumstance, it displeases the Lord. It's not a good way to get something from our Heavenly Father that's going to be good. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused, so that the fire of the Lord burned among them. And consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. God was so mad, he barbecued some of the Israelites. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Lord still works that way in the age of grace, but it does give you pause for a moment to take a look and ask yourself a simple question. Is complaining a good thing when it's complaining against the Lord? And it's not. If God is absolutely sovereign, then everything he allows and or does, whether he just simply allows it for a purpose, or he actually causes it for a purpose, in other words, he's the causative agent, or he allows it, he doesn't want us complaining about it. He wants us praying about it. In other words, not grumbling about it, not going, Lord, what are you doing? If I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. Can I just tell you that most of the time our complaining to the Lord is actually pride? It's thinking that we know better than God. That, in a general sense, is why we do it. It was certainly true for the Jewish people, for the Israelites, as they wandered in the wilderness. And then, verse 2, the people cried out to Moses. And when Moses prayed to the Lord, here it is, the fire was quenched. When somebody stopped complaining and started praying, the fire went out. This is for us tonight, church. I'm hearing a lot of complaining from Christians. Like, well, the governor did this, or the state did that, or the federal government did that, or my neighbor was this, or my friend was that, or my job was this, or wah, 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 wah. Now look, those things are real. I'm not trying to suggest to you they're not. But it does no good to complain ever. Can I just tell you that? It doesn't do a bit of good. Has anything ever gotten changed by complaining? The answer is no. It really hasn't. Oh, sometimes it'll affect some process somewhere along the way. But for the believer, complaining never really has a positive effect. Matter of fact, it has a detrimental effect, especially to our mental well-being, to our spiritual well-being, and very often to our physical well-being. 
And so he called the name of the place Terabah because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Notice how this picks up. So here's the whiners in the wilderness. The wilderness whiners, if you will, get spared by the intercessory prayer life of Moses, much like here in our passage in Amos. Notice what they start to cry out for. When you begin to whine instead of pray, very often you will be satisfied with the things of the world. Check this out. And now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to the intense craving so that the children of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? So what were they complaining about in Numbers chapter 11? They were complaining because God had taken them into the wilderness. They've been spared from bondage. They've actually been spared from death. They've been taken across the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. God is miraculously feeding them and they're going, we don't like the food. We're tired of manna. We don't want any more quail. Matter of fact, they complained about the water. They complained about everything. When you complain about what you do have, very often God takes away what you have and gives you something far worse to prove a point to you. There's a lesson here, church. We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. What did they forget? The number of their people who died in Egypt. Isn't it weird how when you look back at your past, you can remember the good things, but you don't really accurately recount the bad things? You just think about, oh, you know what, I lived that party life. Or I was with that person. Where I did that thing, or I lived in that type of a lifestyle. You remember the two good things. And they weren't actually good, but to you, in your mind, they were good. The fish which we eat freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and oh, by the way, the garlic. Life was spicy. But now her whole being is dried up. And there's nothing at all except this manna before her eyes. I love the name manna. It means what is it? Nobody actually knows what manna is. Other than the fact that in the Ark of the Covenant, there was a little jar in there and manna was inside it. But oddly enough, manna was only good if you collected it on the very day that you needed it. Manna could not be stored except on the Sabbath. God would allow manna to flow over into the next day only on the Sabbath. What does that tell us? It tells us that God wants us to trust him. He wants us to lean on him. He wants us to inquire of him. He wants us to make our lives in tune with what he is doing. And when we don't, we often end up complaining about what we don't have instead of being blessed with what we do. And there is a sure way to understand what you have currently, and that is to have it taken away. It's one of the things I think we struggle with in this country. 
We are so blessed, we don't even know what we have. Travel to a country that's anywhere but here, and you're going to find out very quickly that we are very, very, very blessed. It's one of the things that just flabbergasted me when people were complaining about our rights being taken away during the pandemic. It almost made me nuts. It was one of those areas where it was hard for me to pray for people sometimes. It's just like, are you crazy? I've been to the former Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union. I've been all over Latin America, Central America, South America. I've seen real poverty. We don't even know what that kind of poverty looks like in this country. It doesn't exist here. You complain about it, don't be surprised if God takes it away. Maybe part of the problem with the church in America is that we've been doing too much complaining and not enough praying. And maybe if we prayed more, we might have some better results. Be that type of intercessory prayer warrior. Don't don't gossip. Pray. Don't complain. Pray. Don't bellyache and whine. Pray. You're going to be happier and the people around you are going to be blessed. God's standard of measure is truth, church. It's not the way the public sees things. It's not group think. It's not group speech. It isn't a political agenda. God measures by truth. Verse 7. And thus he showed me, Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with the plumb line, and with the plumb line in his hand. And so we don't use plumb lines much anymore. We still do occasionally in construction, but I'm old enough to remember when virtually every carpenter carried a plumb line in his tool bag. They're extremely effective at doing what they do, and they're only effective at doing exactly one thing. The plumb bob and the string When you hang them from your fingertip, they make a perfectly straight line that is perpendicular to the surface of the earth. Because gravitational force asked on that plumb bob, it hangs straight down. And providing there isn't something obstructing it, whatever you have in that line is perfectly plumb. You can build a whole house that way, by the way. A little simple geometry combined with that one single instrument... That truth, that plumb line, causes things to be either accurate or inaccurate. Now, every once in a while, you'll have a lazy carpenter. And they'll hang that plumb line and, yeah, that doorpost doesn't quite matter if it's not exactly plumb. Which is also attached to the wall, which is also not exactly plumb which is attached to the window header, which is now also not exactly plumb, which is attached to the next door, which is also not exactly plumb, and then they start shimming things over, and then you have this window that now is a trapezoid instead of a rectangle or a square. Why am I giving you all this construction stuff? 
Because when God hangs out a plumb line, that plumb line, in this case, is his word. Everything is measured by what God says it is. It is true. It is truth. It's not negotiable. It isn't something where you can go, well, you know, I'm going to make, I'm going to, in, in this, my little area of the world, the plumb line is actually not plumb. It's off by 1.275 degrees right here in my little world. No, it's actually not because when you hang the plumb bob, it's still going to be off. That's how God views truth. Truth is not negotiable. You don't get to, well, this is my truth. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. God's people are supposed to be a plumb line in their culture. We're supposed to be bearers of truth so that when people talk to us, we talk to them with truth. We use now laser levels to do almost everything. A laser does much the same thing, except you can do it on multiple planes. You can do it horizontal, you can do it vertical. Got really cool ones that mount on the top of a tripod, and you can turn them on, press a button, they self-level, and throws a beam around the room, and you can hang nice things like ceilings. But in the very same way, God's word provides the line for us so that nothing is off in our lives. But if we don't turn on the laser level, if we do not hang the plumb line, if we just say, well, God's not here anymore, so we're going to not listen to what he said previously, because that would be what God's word is to all of us, what he said previously, amen? So if we stop listening, he's not passing by, he's not bringing us any new revelation, this is what he said, this is what he means, this is what he wants, then guess what happens to our lives? They get radically out of whack. They're no longer true to the word of God. And that was the problem. Because it was the priests that were off. It was the people that were supposed to be the ones leading everyone else in righteousness that were no longer plumb. They were no longer walking in the word. They were choosing a new path. They were trying to mix all kinds of things in, into their worship. They were worshiping specifically the calf god Baal. They were supposed to be worshiping God. They're supposed to be using unwavering truth as their standing. And I think in our world, in our day, and in our time, we have to be careful. Because politics is not a plumb bob. It's not a laser level. Situational ethics, also not a plumb bob, not a laser level. 
Existential thinking, philosophy, also not a level, not a plumb bob. Those things which are situational to you. Pop culture. Pop psychology. I'm not talking about psychology of the science of. I'm talking about when people take tidbits of psychology and they go, well, this is how I interpret that. And that becomes the new plumb bob for marriage. For our social dealings with one another. We have to be careful that the plumb bob remains true. The sanctuaries here that are mentioned are the two chief temples that are at Dan and Bethel. Those are both in northern Israel to this day. And in fact, the temple of Dan still stands. It's almost on the border of Lebanon and Israel. And it was there that the children of Israel kind of got a new plumb bob. They said, well, we'll just kind of mix in the worship of Baal. That's a little more liking to our culture. We want to be culturally relevant. We want to make sure that we fit in with our neighbors. So we're just going to do what they do, and we're going to kind of try and worship God at the same time. Anybody want to take a guess what happened? They got wiped out. God said, "Mm -mm, that's not working for me. And as he's doing this, Amos is starting to cut really close to the bone on the children of Israel. He's about to get really unpopular because he's going to go after Jeroboam, the king of Israel. I can tell you, when you touch on people's false gods, they get really upset. And we got a few false gods in our world today. And when I touch on them from the pulpit, I can guarantee you I'm going to get some wonderful emails. They're very expressive. That's about what's to happen here. And then Amaziah, verse 10, the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel. These are the two most powerful people in the country at that time, in the nation. So you have the top religious leader and you have the king. So in the north, you have a king. In the south, you have a king. There's two kings. The kingdom of Judah has its own king, has its own temple in Jerusalem. And there is a temple in Samaria and a temple in Bethel. And there is an altar in Dan in the northern kingdom. So you have Jeroboam in the north. And the rightful king in the south. Those who would be related to King David. Well, our king's good. Look at the great things we got going on. Now we got this nice tasty barbecue. The girls wear bikinis to church. This is awesome. Saying, so here's the religious ruler talking about somebody who's heard from the Lord Pray to the Lord. The Lord has relented. So here's this false priest talking to the king. This is what happens when you mix religion and politics. Here it is. Saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. Was that true? Absolutely not. And in fact, Amos had been used to spare them from being destroyed by God. But when you touch on somebody's false god, 
and that is also mixed with the politics of the day, you are going to make a whole bunch of enemies. Because people have made allegiances and alliances with both the political and the religious fringes. They're very popular. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel will surely be led away captive. Now that part's true. It's funny when people quote you, they don't quote you accurately. Amos didn't say that the children of Israel couldn't be spared. He said, this is what's going to happen if you don't change your ways. He never said that there was going to be anything happen to Jeroboam that was of this nature. And then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, and flee to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there prophesy, never again prophesy in Bethel. This is what happens when you speak truth. Very often people will say, you know, you need to get out of here. For it's the king's sanctuary, it's the royal residence. In other words, two things. The king and the church are together. And then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet. In other words, I didn't go to seminary. I didn't go to prophet school. There was a prophet school, by the way, in Jerusalem. Nor was I a son of the prophet. But I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. And then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go and prophesy to my people Israel. This is one of the most beautiful examples of the Lord using someone who's just simply called and available. Not an ounce of training, hadn't even been to Bible college. He was just simply available to be used of the Lord and was willing to open his mouth and say what God told him to say, and God used him. And he was hated for it. But he's right dead in the center of God's will. Now here comes the rebuke of Amaziah the priest, and now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, don't prophesy against Israel. And do not spout against the house of Isaac. For thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. It's like, yikes. When the Spirit of God is upon someone, you just got to say what you got to say. And sometimes people don't like it. Your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by a survey line and you'll die in a defiled land and all Israel will be led away captive from his own land. I I don't know if you've thought about what's going on here much, but as you think on this, I mean, it'd be the equivalent of you standing in St. Peter's Square in front of the Vatican, you know, just screaming and yelling at the top of your lungs. Well, what about the $3.8 billion have been spent on pedophilia? By the way, that's the actual number. Doesn't really represent the Lord, does it? You're probably going to get arrested by the Vatican Guard pretty quickly 
not going to go well for you. And so Amos was so bent on doing what God had said for him to do that he was unafraid of the most powerful people in the region at that time. He didn't care what Jeroboam thought. He didn't care what Amaziah, the priest, thought. And so he gets accused of high treason in that sense. But all he's really doing is just simply telling it like it really is. This is the truth. Church, the truth speaks for itself. And when you can simply say what God has already said, you don't have to qualify it. You don't have to explain it. When you can legitimately say, thus says the Lord, in other words, you're saying what God has already said, that's all there is to say. So when people come with various problems that the Bible speaks about, one of the reasons that we, we do biblical exhortation here at this church as opposed to counseling is because we pull out our Bibles and go, this is what the Bible says about those things. You may not like it, you may not agree with it, but I don't have to explain it because God's the one that said it. I can just simply say, thus says the Lord. Provided that that is taken in context and it applies to the situation, this is what God said. We just tell it like it is. And so in that case, he's going to be able to rebuke a priest who's standing at the altar. Jeroboam at this time was very much like the Roman emperors. He was the Pontificus Maximus. He was the person who was in charge and he controlled the church as well. It's one of the great dangers that we have of blending those two things together in our culture. And the reason that Thomas Jefferson gave that famous clause that actually isn't in the Constitution, it's in the letters that were sent to the Danbury Baptist Convention that there should be an inseparable wall between church and state, that's actually a truth that's taught in Scripture. Church and state were never intended by God to be blended. The church is the church. It's supposed to be the higher entity. It's supposed to be holy before the Lord, completely undefiled. The government can never be that because it's not always comprised of Christians. It is not filled with people who love the Lord. It has a ton of things in it that are not biblical. You can't blend those two things together. We should try and put Christians in the most highest offices in the land. We should always vote for the person who has the most closely aligned values to a biblical set of values. Those things are all true. But make no mistake, the church is supposed to maintain the superior order. It's supposed to be the top. And so when you stick the church into the middle of politics, you've actually dumbed down the church. You've made the church less valuable. Leave the church the church. It's supposed to be holy, separate, and set apart unto God for a very specific purpose. Don't confuse that. Make sure that you understand the reason that God wrote Romans 13. That he put rulers over us. He doesn't want the church engaged in having to try criminal cases. He doesn't want the church having to declare war. Can you imagine if we actually had a combination of church and state? 
and we're attacked, the church has to declare war on another country. Can you imagine? The Bible plainly teaches the separation of these two things. Because God's people are a different kind of people. We actually serve a king who resides in heaven. And his kingdom is not of this earth. We can't forget that. It's our duty, it's our obligation to present the one true king. Not an amalgamation of other things. We shouldn't try and dump all these things and, well, here's kind of what God, no, let's just be holy as he is holy. Let's be righteous as he is righteous. Let's speak truth as he speaks truth. William Carey, who is the founder of the Baptist Missionary Society, by every standard you can possibly imagine was anything but extraordinary. But what he accomplished in India is mind-boggling. This is a man with no formal education. He eventually translated the Bible into Bengali, Oriya, Amise, Marathi, Hindi, and Sanskrit by himself. No formal education whatsoever. And because of that, he became very famous in Britain. So on a journey back to Britain, on a vessel that was filled with colonial rulers, he was being talked down to because he had no education. He couldn't announce where he was from. He really had very little history. And he's sitting at the captain's table, and the captain said, I understand, Mr. Carey, that you decided to become a missionary, but before that you were a shoemaker. And William Carey replied, no, sir. I was not a shoemaker. I was only a cobbler. I couldn't make shoes. I just mended them. I had much less value than a shoemaker. But William Carey was mightily used of the Lord. And in the same way, Amos was a herder of sheep and a collector of sycamore fruit. He was unlearned by every shake of the imagination. He had no formal education whatsoever. But he was anointed and appointed by God for a very specific purpose And he was unafraid and unashamed and simply spoke what the Lord had for him to speak. And God used him. He had boldness that I only pray to have. He had a way about him that caused counselors and kings to have second thoughts about what they were thinking and doing with regard to what Amos had said. Amaziah's personal doom is a direct result of his personal attack on God's ambassador. One of the things people will often say, well, you know, what are you going to do about that? 
I have learned as I've gotten older, the best answer I can give is absolutely nothing except pray. I found that when I get engaged in debates with people and carry on long conversations about what they don't like about me or this church or whatever, that the best thing I can do is pray for them. And if God needs to give them a spanking, that's up to him. And if God wants to do something else in their life, that also is up to him. But if I will just simply do what he asked me to do, then it is up to him to defend me. And in fact, when I get to heaven, here's a shocker. You know what? I'm not going to answer to anybody except Jesus. And that's not prideful and arrogant. That's just simply saying, I'm going to try and do my best to be well-pleasing to the Lord and let God sort out the details. I say that for this reason. We should all be like that. Every one of us should lean so hard on what the Word of God says and on prayer that when we have prayed about it incessantly, when we have done all that we can do and we have read what the Word of God declares about that thing or that situation, whatever truth we can absorb from the Word, we can faithfully just leave it in God's hands. It's like, Lord, I'm asking you to do what I can't. Here's the situation. Do you need to deal with Amaziah? Deal with Amaziah. If you need to deal with Jeroboam, deal with Jeroboam. If you need to deal with the priest or you need to deal with the king, then God, you do it. I'm staying out of it. I'm just going to say what I need to say. And I'm going to leave the results in God's hands. If we do that, I believe that the church will be more powerful. We stay out of the peripheral things that the church isn't supposed to be doing. I believe the church will be more successful. The goal of the church is to preach and teach and reach. It's not to debate. It isn't to be socially accurate or politically active. It is to preach the gospel, teach the word, and reach people for the cause of Christ. That's all Amos cared about. And that's what we care about here in this church. It's a great calling. It's a great privilege. And if we'll do that well, we can leave the results in God's hands. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Father, we thank you for the incredible example of this amazing man, Amos, who was unashamed and unafraid of the gospel, really, in that sense. Though the gospel hadn't been preached or completed yet, uh, he believed that you called, that you caused people to come to truth, that you yourself are the truth. Lord Jesus, that what you say is always true. It will never be false. And that we stand on what you have said, that we can be assured that we're right. And Lord, we can let it go. And so we pray that you turn us into an army of prayer warriors, men and women who are unashamed of the gospel, who on bended knee and bowed hearts are concerned about the things that concern you, willing to pray for anything, anytime, anywhere, willing to go and do and be whatever you've called us to be. Lord, we thank you for getting us out of our comfort zones occasionally and sticking us in situations that 
cause us to rest in you alone. Lord, we thank you for those, those times when our lives are upended. Lord, we thank you for the things that we go through that we often look at trials as trials or tribulations, but actually they're for our good. And so, Lord, we bless you for this man's life. Can't wait to meet him when we get to heaven. Pray that you would make us bold and make us prayer warriors as he was. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.